I've asked Professor Jay Warden to come up and to lead us in a reflection that flows out of that music that we just heard and will flow into what I have to say this morning. questions and reflections regarding the nature of being a Christian. Am I a Christian? What is it that makes me a Christian? I have had a Christian conversion, a conversion experience. Is that a sufficient sign of a Christian? I'm a Christian believer. I believe in the scriptures and other Christian truths. Then conversion and belief. Are these sufficient credentials for being a Christian? I'm also a member of a Christian community. I may be a member of a church. I listen to Christian music. I choose Christian friends. I attend a Christian college. I may even like chapel and Dr. Gundry's tough courses. I am a Christian member. These are the three characteristics of most modern Christians. A conversion experience, belief in Christian truths, and membership. Dallas Willard, one of the well-known American Christian writers, finds this one of the most troubling aspects of most modern Christians. That includes all of us. This is what he writes. For at least several decades, the churches of the Western world have not made discipleship a condition of being a Christian. Contemporary American churches do not require following Christ in his example, spirit, and teaching, a condition for membership. While the Great Commission of Jesus calls for baptism into discipleship, modern Christians are baptized into membership only. Hence, here are some reflections for us this morning. Then am I required to be a disciple in order to become a Christian? 
Can I remain a Christian without any signs of progress in discipleship? The disciple is a follower. The disciple follows his or her master. Do I consider discipleship as optional, set apart for super-Christians? Jess Moody says that most of today's Christians are undiscipled disciples. Then, am I a member of instant Christianity, like instant coffee? Am I a member of painless Christianity? Of cheap grace? Finally, am I a Christian member who has not yet decided to follow Jesus? Or am I a fair-weather Christian? When it profits me, I follow him. The New Testament reading for today is from 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. These are the scriptures for our thinking this morning. Dr. Jai Warden posed some very difficult questions for us. I appreciated the fact that you were listening. I hope you were answering the questions as he went through them, or at least wrestling with the questions as he went through them. About every two or three years, I say what I'm about to say. And I've had alums from the last 12 years come back and tell me it may be the only thing they actually heard in chapel. I think most people think that I say it for shock value. And I'm certainly not above that. But I mainly say it because I believe it to be true. There are about 800 people here in the chapel this morning. Ten years from now, my guess is that about 40 of you will be deeply following Jesus Christ. Now you think I'm just saying that. My guess is another couple hundred of you will be following him at quite a distance, but your lives will look quite Christian. But if we scratched beneath the surface, we'd find that you might be Christian, but as to following Jesus, beginning to look like him, think like him, act like him, feel like him, 
that there would be a distinguishing mark of Jesus in your life? Might be questionable. Which will you be? You know, if you don't make the decision while you're here, I'm quite convinced that apart from a miracle of God, you'll spend the next 10 years, especially you seniors who are leaving, you'll spend the next 10 years of your life on a conveyor belt of career. And you'll wake up at about age 30, and uh, some of you will be married, some of you will have children, and you'll say to yourself, we better get back to that stuff for the kids. And so you'll, you'll go back to that stuff for the kids. And so you'll start painting a thin veneer of Christianity over your life again, which had, had, had been washed away by the ten years of, of seeking a career advancement. This can happen, by the way, whether you go into a so-called secular career or whether you go into full-time ministry. Part of my counseling over the years has been with pastors and full-time Christian workers who over the ten years following college lost their love for Christ but had wonderful careers, were sought after to speak and to teach in places. You can be inoculated. Imagine for just a minute, in the midst of a plague in the Middle Ages, if we could somehow, in the midst of all the death and dying, if we could somehow go out and inoculate people with just a little bit of life. The sallow cheek, the sunken eyes, the, 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 the pale skin color. And we could just give them a little inoculation of, of life. I mean... A vitamin, vitamin complex, uh, uh, advance their T cells, give them a little blood transfusion of some fresh blood, and we might find that a person's cheeks would, would, the color would come back in. And their eyes might take a tiny twinkle, and, and for a moment it light, might look like they had real life. Because in comparison with the others, they were doing so much better. But it would be short-lived. And they would certainly not be experiencing real life the way we think of real life. They were, in a a sense, inoculated against the real life by a little bit of it. Or again, take uh, your college career. One of the saddest things that might happen to you here at Westmont is that you will be inoculated against learning. You say, wait a minute, how can that be? You'll get just enough of it. And it'll all be required and for a grade. You'll get just enough of it to look educated. But you won't be a lifelong learner. You won't have fallen in love with learning itself. Oh, you will have read East of Eden by John Steinbeck. You might even be able to, to analyze it. In fact, you could probably tell about the themes. And in a conversation at work or at a cocktail party, you could say, you know, Steinbeck was one of my favorite authors. And you'll be able to say that for 10 years and 15 years and 20 years without ever having gone back and read another Steinbeck novel in your life. Without having gone back and reread East of Eden for the pure joy of it. You'll look educated, but you won't be educated. You'll look, you'll be inoculated against learning by a little bit of it. And the same thing can happen in the area of faith. 
that you could be inoculated against Jesus by a small dose of North American evangelical Christianity. Inoculated. A little bit of color in your cheeks. You can say John 3.16 in 1.7 seconds. You could even talk about the four missionary trips of Paul. And you might even be able to sort of trace them a little bit. At least you kind of know they go up around the Mediterranean and winds up in Rome. And you could probably talk about the Q source of the gospel theories. Or you could talk about some of the literary and critical problems of the Pentateuch. Or you could talk about Deutero-Isaiah. Or you could talk about the history of theology. All good things. You could be, you could have that much knowledge about Christianity and completely miss Jesus. You could be inoculated with our own 20th century North American Westmont type of Christianity in such a way that you could overlook Jesus himself. I was asked by a student the other day, I just made the offhanded comment that I've done over a thousand chapels. I was adding them up. I do this at the end of the year. You think you have to come to a lot of them. Thousand chapels. And this person said, what was your favorite chapel? And I thought, and and it struck me immediately which one it was. It's a little embarrassing because it was in the first year. I guess it's gone downhill since. And the person that had come to speak at my favorite chapel had been had been lined up by my predecessor. So it wasn't even somebody I can take credit for. I'd never met the man until he arrived here to speak in chapel. He was a large, beautiful African man. He was from Uganda. He was about twice my size in every way. And his smile was about ten times as big as mine. And his name was Bishop Festo Kavengeri. He was the bishop of Uganda. Uganda at that time had just come out of a long civil war where genocide had been practiced by a hideous dictator by the name of Idi Amin. Hundreds of thousands of Ugandans were put to death. There were killing fields all over Uganda. And Bishop Festo Kavengeri had been exiled because... There were so many threats against his life. He kept going back and living in the midst of it, and associates and friends and family were killed. And finally, his friends just literally made him leave the country, and he was here preaching. You know what he preached on? The passage I read at the beginning of this talk. The love of Christ compels us. And he stood up here, right here, and he said... The love of Christ compels us. This is no inoculation of religion. He had the real thing. This was not just a slight blush in his face. This was full life showing itself. He wrote a book called Why I Love Idi Amin. Idi Amin was the dictator who had a sentence of death on Festo's life. How can a man write a book... This is why I love the man who's trying to kill me and who's killed hundreds of thousands of my compatriots. What is it that causes a man to do that? How can someone write, it is well with my soul when they're over the grave of their children? 
It's because they haven't been inoculated. They've been infected by Jesus Christ. They've contracted Jesus Christ and they can't get over him. And my fear is that you would go through your four years here. Some of you only have weeks left of it. And you won't contract Jesus Christ. You'll just contract a mild case of religiosity. And the saddest thing is that it may keep you from ever contracting Jesus, being infected by his spirit, invaded by him. I think there's only one way to avoid that mistake, and it's to make a crushing decision. And the crushing decision is that you will be a follower of the living Jesus. It crushes your ability to live your life the way you want to from here on out. That's why I said it's crushing. The love of Christ compels us. We look at it this way. One man died and therefore all men died so that those people might live not for themselves but for him who died for them. It's a crushing decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ because it crushes your will your decisions, your desires, and you say, from now on, I take orders from the one who loved me and died for me and knows everything and has nothing but my best interests at heart, but I will die to my own dreams and I will come alive to his. And I would say, if you haven't made that decision, in the depths of your mind, every corner of your mind and in the depths of your heart and at the core of your will, you may just have a small case of Christianity the rest of your life. As Diane White comes up to the piano, she's going to lead us in music for the last 15 minutes of chapel because I wanted you to have time to think about what I've said. But I want to read, before she begins, these comments from Oswald Chambers in My Utmost for His Highest. The proof that I've been through crucifixion with Jesus, that's the crushing part, is that I have a decided likeness to him. The incoming of the Spirit of Jesus into me readjusts my personal life to God. The resurrection of Jesus has given him authority to impart the life of God to me, and my experiential life must be constructed on the basis of his life in me. I can have the resurrection life of Jesus now, but it will show itself in holiness. The resurrection life of Jesus invades every bit of my human nature. The Holy Spirit cannot be located as a guest in a house. He must invade everything. So there is only one stamp of holiness the holiness of Jesus. And I belong to that new order. I want you to enter into a spiritual 
decision-making process between now and the end of the semester. Our last chapel of the year, for some of you, the last chapel of your four years, will be a communion service that's completely voluntary. Everyone gets chapel credit for it. And I would like you to use that, if it fits for your life, as a decision-making point where you drive a stake into the ground and you say, I will be a follower of Jesus Christ for the rest of my life. And I'd like that to be the only reason you come to that communion service. I'd like you not to discuss it with others. I'd like you to examine. You have about two weeks, two and a half weeks, something like that, to examine your own heart and mind. That communion service may not be the way for you to make that decision, but I'm offering it to you as a as a place where you can say, I made this decision. It's crushing. It's irrevocable. But it's about life itself. I want to be infected with Jesus. And I don't ever want to get over it. So I'd like you to examine the cost of that decision over the next two and a half weeks and come to that communion service only if that's your decision. Father, we thank you for this time of worship and reflection. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.